So very good to see you this morning, as always. I love you. And I'm so incredibly thankful for this church family. Thank you for being who you are. And thank you for being with us this morning, whether you're here in person or you're watching online. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been in a relationship that you felt was sort of a one-sided relationship? where you feel like you're putting forth all of the effort and you're trying to be a good friend or you're trying to be good in the relationship, you're trying to be kind, you're trying to be helpful, you're, you're sending them text messages, you're, you're, trying to, you're trying to make and foster that relationship, but you feel like it's not reciprocated? You ever felt like that? You felt like they're, they're really not doing anything to foster the relationship. They're not doing anything to make the relationship what it ought to be. Maybe, if we're honest, we don't say this very often, especially in worship. But maybe you've even felt that way with God. Maybe sometimes you felt like you're in a one-way relationship with God. Like you're, you're praying and you're trying, and you're, you're striving, and you're, you're doing the religious stuff that you were told that you're supposed to do, but things are still broken. And you think, I prayed, came to church, and I still got sick. I prayed, and I sang the songs, I put money in the plate, and my mom still died. I prayed, and I still lost my job. And you feel like you're, you're doing the, the stuff that you think you're supposed to do, and maybe God's not following through on the things that you were told that he was promising you, the, the life that you thought he was supposed to give you. This is where the, the people of Jerusalem found themselves, and they began to ask the question, why even bother? And maybe you've been there too. Why even bother? Why even go through all of this stuff? Why say these prayers? Why sing these songs? Why do all of these things? If you remember, we talked about the fact that the, the Jews were taken off into Babylonian captivity, and then they came back to Jerusalem, and they started to rebuild the, the city and rebuild eventually the temple. And they, they did all of these things and they started to sacrifice again and they reinstituted the feasts and they started to try to keep the law and they had the priesthood and they were doing all of the religious things that they were supposed to do and they waited and they waited and they waited. They knew that God had promised to do amazing things, to send the Messiah to shake the nations and to pour the wealth of the nations into the temple of God. And they were waiting for God to show up and do what he had promised to do. They waited for 100 years. From the time that they came back from exile to the time of Malachi's prophecy, they had been waiting for 100 years. And they were asking questions like this. Why even bother? Why even bother? Why bother with sacrifices? Why bother with prayers? Why bother with worship? Why bother being religious people? When God's not keeping his promises, God isn't giving us the life that he said he was going to give us, why even bother? They felt like this was a one-way, one-sided relationship. And again, 
maybe you felt this way too. But God's response was a shocking wake-up call to the people of Jerusalem. His response to them was not what you might expect. So if you have your Bible, look at Malachi chapter 1 and verse 1. Here's what Malachi said on behalf of God, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, here's how the people might have responded, but you say, how have you loved us? You hear the response? It's not a, oh, God, you, you have loved us. Tell us about the ways that you've loved us. It's a scoffing response. It's a cynical response that says, Psh, yeah, right. You haven't loved us. It's a scoffing response that says, that's not true. You say you love us. You say you have loved us, but prove it. How have you loved us? How have you done anything for us? How have you been good to us? And God responds, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom, Edom are the descendants of Esau, if Edom says, We are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, They may build, but I'll tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. God says, look at the other nations like Edom. They're descended from Esau, and I picked you. I picked Jacob. I picked Israel. I didn't pick Esau. I picked you to love you, to bless you. You sinned, and Edom sinned. And when Edom sinned, I said, I'm done with them. And I cut them off forever. And when you sinned, I forgave you. And I brought you back. And I'm rebuilding you. Do you see what I'm doing for you? Do you see how I've loved you? And maybe we can see that, the big picture of how God loved Jacob, how God loved Israel, how over the course of history, God forgave them over and over and over again, how he brought them back to their homeland, how he blessed them, how he forgave them, because he had a plan for them that through them he was going to bring Jesus into the world. But for any given generation, in the middle of that story, it was kind of hard to see the big picture, wasn't it? And all they could see in that moment was, this hurts. This hurts, and I don't see the fulfillment of your promises, God. I don't see how there's any difference between us and anybody else. You say that we're the favored ones. You say we're the chosen ones. You say we're the blessed ones. And look at what we're living in. Look at this mess Jerusalem is still in. Look at our lives how are we your chosen people? How have you really loved us? Again, it's easy when you see the big picture to say, yes, God really did love you. And he was there with you the whole time. But when you're right in the middle of the struggle, when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, it's easy to ask, how have you loved us? Verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where is my honor? 
And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? You see, now God is turning the tables on them and saying, no, 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 listen, you said you've been trying this whole time. You've been trying, you've been religious, you've been doing all the things that you're supposed to do, and God says, you call that trying? You call what you're doing trying? Are you really trying? Because really what you're doing is despising my name. But of course, we might do the same thing. They respond, how have we despised your name? We're still going through all of the rituals that you told us to do. We're still doing the things you told us to do. How have we despised your name? We get kind of defensive, don't we? When God says, yeah, yeah, it kind of is a one-sided relationship. But it's one-sided on my part, not on yours. Because your efforts are not really what you think they are. You need to wake up and recognize that you are despising my name. But again, they're blaming God and saying, no, 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 this is all your fault. He says in verse 7, this is how you've despised my name, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that, God says, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Would you offer that to your governor? You don't even love your governor, but at least you fear your governor. And you wouldn't take these lame, sick, broken sacrifices, these animals, and give those as an offering to your governor, but yet you bring them to me. Why? Because you're asking yourself, what difference does it make? Why even bother? God doesn't really love us. He doesn't really care. He doesn't really see us. And when we begin to think that way, we get sort of apathetic, don't we? And we say, what difference does it make? What difference does it make if I give my whole heart to God or if I just give part of myself to God? What difference does it make if I offer everything to him or I just offer him a little? What difference does it make? Why even bother? Why give him the best? Why give him everything? Why sacrifice to him things that are costly when I don't see any immediate benefit to it? So God says, do you call what you're doing trying? Are you really even bothering are you really putting forth an effort? If you were to give the same effort to the governor, what would he say about that? And again, maybe we could stop and think about our own lives. And maybe we could think about the way we serve God and the way we sacrifice for God. If we took that same effort and we offered that same type of effort to someone else in our life, what would they say about that? If you took the same amount of effort that you really give to God and you gave that to your boss, what would your boss say? If you showed up at work once a week for about an hour and while you were there, you were kind of distracted and thinking about other things, would your boss say, way to go. You're really giving it your all. Way to go. You're doing a terrific job. Or what if you showed up at home and you ate with your spouse once a week? And while you were there, you, you weren't really engaged in conversation. You were thinking about other things and thinking, when is this going to be done? And when can I leave the table? And I, I'll come back in, a, in another week or so. Would your spouse say, oh, you really love me. 
I'm so thankful for this relationship that we have. But yet this is what the people were doing. They were showing up with this apathetic, half-hearted, sacrificing, and then saying to God, God, why don't you listen to us? Why don't you you keep your promises to us? Why don't you do all the things you told us you were going to do? And God says, do you really think what you're doing is trying? Are you really giving me your heart and your life and your everything? Are you really committed to me? Is this what you call commitment? Is this what you call loyalty? Is this what you call faith? Verse 9, and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to you. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. See, we tend to think, this is hard, isn't it? We tend to think that something is better than nothing, don't we? We tend to think something is better than nothing, that that God ought to be pleased that we're trying to give him something, But God says, if this is what you're going to give me, your lame sacrifices, your blind sacrifices, your sick sacrifices, and you're going to call that a sacrifice, I wish somebody would just shut the doors and just stop wasting your time and mine because this is not real devotion to me. And again, if we showed up at work, sometimes the way we show up for God, and we said, come on, at least I've given you something, boss. At least I'm doing something. I showed up for an hour. Aren't you pleased with that? Wouldn't the boss say, do do you really expect me to respond well to that? If we showed up for our family, if we showed up for our spouse, the way we show up for God, and then we expected them to reciprocate or appreciate what we're offering them, is it really that something is better than nothing? Or does God really want everything? Surrender to me, love me, be devoted to me the way that that what I've done for you demands. Do you not see how I've loved you? Do you not see what I've done for you? Do you not see how you're my chosen people? And yet you, you offer me these things that are polluted and defiled And you're apathetic and you're half-hearted and you expect me to respond well to that. Verse 11, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. God says, The the nations will fear me and love me and know who I am. And Israel, Jerusalem, was supposed to be a light for the world. Was supposed to be the salt of the earth. And yet this is how they were responding to God. But you say, verse 13, but you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and bows it, and yet sacrifices the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. You're doing this, and then you say, oh, 
We are so worn out from serving God. Oh, this is so exhausting doing all the things God wants us to do. And God says, you're you're not even doing it. You're not even really giving yourself to me. You're offering these kinds of sacrifices and then you snort at it and you say, what a weariness it is. You say you're exhausted from, from serving God, but you're really not serving him the way you're called to. Look at chapter 3 and verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You've said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Why even bother? Why even bother? Why bother being religious people? Why bother offering sacrifices? Why bother saying prayers? Why bother keeping all the rules? And and you're looking out at the world and saying, but they're having all the fun. They're getting to do what they want to do and they're just breaking all the rules and they're doing all of these things and they're getting away with it. And their life seems to be better than ours. And God says, you're being rather harsh with me. Your words are rather hard to me because this is really your heart. This is really the way that you're thinking about it. Oh yeah, you're singing the songs and you're going through the motions and you're offering some sort of a sacrifice, but your heart is out there. Your heart is with the evildoers. You're saying, I might as well be one of them. I might as well do what they're doing because they're having all the fun and they're breaking all the rules and they're getting away with it. And God says, That's where your heart is. And I want your heart devoted to me. I want you to see that it is worth it to love me. It is worth it to serve me. It is worth it to be committed to me. Through Malachi, God is saying, wake up to the ways that you have drifted from God. We don't have time to walk through all of these, but wake up to the ways you've drifted from God. Here's some of the things in Malachi that we see. Number one, offering subpar sacrifices and half-hearted worship to God. Wake up and realize that if you're far away from God, maybe it's not God who has deserted you. Maybe it's you who have drifted from him. And you can see that in your offering of subpar sacrifices. Or number two, marrying pagan wives and adopting their practices. Or number three, divorcing your wives unjustly. Number four, sorcery and adultery and perjury and injustice. And finally, number five, withholding money from the house of God and their tithes and offerings. So... God is saying to them a hundred years after they've come back from exile, did you learn nothing? Did you learn nothing? Did you not change at all? Has your heart not softened at all? You're, You're still doing the same things that your forefathers were doing. And yet you're blaming me, you're blaming God for the distance between you and God. Maybe it's not God who's deserted you. Maybe it's you who've drifted from him. Wake up and recognize that you've drifted away from him and he's calling you back, calling you back to wholehearted devotion. 
Look at chapter 3 and verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. There's the good news. The good news is that there was always a remnant of people, always a remnant of people who were committed to the Lord. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession... And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. God says, I, I see you. I see you. Those of you that are serving wholeheartedly, those of you who fear me and love me and serve me, I see you and I remember you and you're going to be my treasured possession forever. And someday you will see that there is a distinction between those who are committed to the Lord and those who are not. It's easy in the moment to say, what difference does it make? Why even bother? How, how am I benefited by, by serving the Lord and making sacrifices and worshiping Him and going through all of these things? How do I benefit from that when the people out there are just doing whatever they want to and getting away with it? God says someday, someday everyone will see that there is a distinction. Because I remember those who are mine. I remember those who fear me. I remember those who are committed to me. And you may not see it today, but you'll see it on that day. In fact, Malachi says that the Lord himself will come and will sort out those who belong to him and those who don't. And a distinction will be made just because you can't see the distinction today. And maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel that way and you think, I know people who are... They're just the worst. They're doing all kinds of things. They're breaking all the rules. They don't fear God. They don't love God. They don't serve God. And their life seems pretty great. And my life seems pretty rotten. And the things I'm going through don't even compare to what the benefits that they have. And God says, it won't always be this way. The Lord will show up and you will see the distinction between those who fear God and those who don't. In fact, the book of Malachi ends, and this is actually the last chapter of, of the Old Testament. The very final chapter of the Old Testament. It ends with chapter 4 of Malachi. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. The Assyrian exile, the Babylonian exile, these weren't the only days of the Lord. There was a, there's still a day of the Lord coming, and God's going to make a distinction between those who belong to him and those who don't. Verse 2, but for you who fear my name, for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. A day is coming, and it's bad news for those who don't fear the Lord. But it's good news for those who do. And if you fear the Lord, 
If you keep on keeping on, if you're steadfast, if you persevere, if you trust him, if you surrender to him, if you're committed to him, if you give him your loyalty and your allegiance, that day, oh, that day is going to be like the rising of the sun. And you're going you're gonna to go forth from the stall like a leaping calf. You're, you're, you're just going to love it. And you're going to be filled with joy and peace forever. Because God says, I remember those who are mine. I remember those who fear me. And it will be worth it. It will be worth it to be totally, completely committed to me. But you're going to have to wait. You're going to have to persevere. You're going to have to be patient. You're going to have to wait for the day of the Lord. But for those who fear him, the day of the Lord is nothing to fear. Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And that's it. That's the end of the Old Testament, at least how we've organized our Bibles. And the people had to wait for another hundred years. And then another hundred years. And then a third hundred years. And then a fourth hundred years. And then finally, John, the baptizer, came. Like the prophet Elijah. Like a voice crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord's coming. And he's going to make a distinction between those who belong to him and those who don't. You see, being a part of God's people means waiting being a part of God's people means being patient. Being a part of God's people means persevering. On the good days, the days where we feel it, and the days where we see it, and on the days where we don't. See, this is what faith is all about. Faith is being loyal. Faith is being loyal even when you can't see any immediate benefits. That's what faith is all about. It's what the book of Hebrews is all about. That's what Hebrews 11 is saying about faith. Faith is being loyal to God. It's giving him your allegiance and your commitment, even when you can't in the moment see any immediate benefits. Even when you look at your life and say, why even bother? Why even bother? Faith is remembering that it's worth it. It's worth it to be faithful to him. It's worth it to wait for the Lord. And I want to say this. That in the moment where we don't see any immediate benefit, it's okay to say that. It's okay to say that. A lot of our Bible is made up, the, the book of Psalms is made up of songs where the psalmist is saying that. This hurts. I don't know how long I can hold on here. God, are you going to show up? Are you going to do something about this immediate situation? It's okay for you to say this situation stinks and it hurts and I don't like it and I want this situation to change. That's okay to say that. But in the moment, three things. Don't, don't compromise your loyalty. See, we're going to be tempted in those moments where we think, is it worth it to be loyal to God? We're, we're going to be tempted to say, well, I can give part of my loyalty and my allegiance to the world 
to the institutions and the powers of the world because then by giving my allegiance to them, then I can see immediate benefit. God calls that adultery. Adultery. To make yourself a friend of the world because in the world you find immediate benefits. God says, wait for me. Trust in me. Be committed to me. Give me your loyalty and allegiance. It will be worth it to wait for the Lord. So, so don't compromise your loyalty. And secondly, just because you can't see any immediate benefits doesn't mean there aren't any. Just because you can't see any immediate benefits doesn't mean that God isn't blessing you right now, right here. You might not see it, but he is more than you can possibly imagine. The Lord is saying to you, even when you say, how have you loved us? He's saying to you, I have loved you. And if you could see the big picture, you would know how much I've loved you. Just because you can't see any immediate benefits doesn't mean that he is not immediately benefiting you and blessing you. But also don't forget that the greatest benefits are not immediate. They are eternal, which means they are for the age to come. The greatest benefits will be experienced when he raises your dead body from the grave and he transforms you to be immortal and imperishable and undefiled and you will live forever and co-reign with Jesus and inherit the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. That's the benefit. That's the benefit of remaining loyal to God. And if you're faithful unto death, he will give you the crown of life. He saved you and is saving you and will save you because of his love, because of his grace, because of his mercy. And the way you receive that salvation, trust him. Have faith in him. Be loyal to him. Even when you don't see any immediate benefits. If we can help you this morning to respond to that good news that God really does love you and that he wants to bless you more than you can possibly imagine. If we can help you to put Jesus on in baptism or maybe you're just tired and worn out and you need brothers and sisters to pray with you and pray for you. If there's any way we can help you this morning, our shepherds would love to pray with you in the prayer room or you can come forward now. Let's together we stand and sing this song.